You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hello, Michael. Andre, it's been a hell of a weekend. I think it's been a good couple of weeks. I think a lot of people may have noticed that we took uh, last week off. Uh, you know, mea culpa, that wasn't fully planned, but we figured rather than half-assing something, we'd wait until we had something to talk about. and a then. And well, then we were both so busy that um, uh, we had a great we we attended a great tasting last week, but now, um, as people can tell, you don't sound like your fine mellifluous self. No, no, I'm actually in my car. I am heading to the airport. I am off to the Loire today, so I'm I'm kind of excited. Uh, I've never been to the Loire, and uh, I'm looking forward to tasting some Cap Franc, some Bouvray. Uh, some Sancerre, uh, some Chenin Blanc, and obviously some sparkling wine. So, uh, uh, what a what an exciting time to uh, to get out of the country and, and do something interesting. But I don't know if people noticed over the weekend uh, that both Andre and I found ourselves in a bit of a pickle before we start talking about other things. Yeah, I mean, we both had our uh, had our Instagram accounts hacked, and it was a pretty pretty savage hack. Um, I mean, just, I guess to anyone listening to this, uh, it's, it's a, um, it's a scheme that's run by foreign people. Um, I mean, country of origin is not important to this, to this story, but it's basically, you basically get a message from someone asking for help with something. And the thing is you and I are both fairly tech savvy, but it's not unusual when we're doing backend stuff or to be testing something or to be testing something audio wise to send a note to someone just being like, Hey, Send me this, send me that, do this for me, I'm testing something. Or, I mean, the fact that we, we do have two-factor authentication on for most of our stuff, like our, our Patreon account, for example, is a good one of that, that if you or I try to log into it, the other person may get a code. So we generally tell each other that, that that's happening. So, send me the code, yeah. 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 Send me the code. So, so you and I have uh, both managed to get our accounts back and have actually found a way to create a safe word um, yes. to make sure that if something someone is actually in trouble and actually I, I don't know about you about you Michael but I know for me I had a lot of I, I actually got a, a lot of phone calls from people that um, I'm not super duper close with but that just wanted to make sure that I wasn't in actual trouble and uh, I thought that was very flattering and reassuring that while there are some scummy human beings trying to prey off the kindness of others um there's also some really good human beings that want to make sure that people are okay. Yeah, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of uh, messenger uh, messenger messages. I guess I got a lot of. Uh, um, I got a lot of uh, on 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 Facebook uh, people getting uh, in touch with me. I did get a few phone calls. That was kind of nice. So thank you, everybody. I know that Andre and I both have our accounts back now. And all I can say about hackers, Andre, is that they can just go shampoo my crotch. Wow, you even managed—you uh, managed to throw that out there without hitting the swear jar. I am uh, super impressed with you. That's well done. Well, you know what I really want to say would get me in a lot of trouble uh, with the swear jar, but I just—just—I don't know what these people are thinking. I don't know what they want from life besides to ruin everybody else's work. That's—that's that's what I—I've uh, learned over the years that. But there are, as you said, some really scummy people in this world. So, there we go. Uh, so, on a lighter note, um, 
let's go back to this tasting that we we did last yeah. week. Um, I know you and I we regularly are fortunate enough to get uh, media samples from Family Wine Merchants, and that's the wine agency that's owned by the Speck Brothers of Henry of Pelham fame. Um, but uh, Gerard Bertrand was in town last week. Yes, actually, the man himself, uh, along with I believe the gentleman was a was a sommelier. I, I didn't fully understand what his position was, but I got the idea, the the notion that he was a a sommelier of sorts. Andreas Larson is the best sommelier of the wor- in the world, or sorry, of the world as of 2007. Uh, here, I, I actually have the tear out in front of me, and I'll, I'll guide you through it because I know you're driving. But here's what it says: He has a discerning palate and is a passionate wine lover. He is known not only for his incredible tasting abilities and vast knowledge, but also for his friendly and professional approach. There we go. All right. Well, he seemed very friendly and and, and approachable. So there you go. That being that being said, as we dig into this, I, I do have some criticism for how the how some of the recommendations and, and advice that were coming because this was this was meant to be a master class where we basically went through uh, some of the regions of Languedoc and some of the estates and the, the winemaking philosophy of Gerard Bertrand and I mean I can tell you from myself anecdotally because it's one of these things where um, well you and I do a lot of work together we still very much taste separately and I, I do yes. prefer to taste separately just because you and I do have different approach, different method- methodology. But I know from my own experience, uh, the Gerard Bertrand wines, uh, especially over the past few years, have increased in consistency across the board. I, I found they used to be a little like um, Russian roulette, where they were either going to be very good or very bad with no in between and the very good ones were very good and the very bad ones were very bad where now I'm finding like it's, it's 90, 95% of the bottles that show up at the house are all supremely drinkable and outstanding value. Yeah, I find that that's what I think too. I find them very drinkable. Uh, you know, they're not always going to be top scoring wine, but they're going to be, you know, a, a, a solid beverage uh, for anybody looking at, and they're usually great value as well. Usually. Definitely. Um, so you know, I think I think the best way for us to go through this is, is why don't we just go through some of the wines uh, chronologically? Because we did get, like I said, a good sampling. Uh, there are sixteen estates that are owned by Gerard Bertrand over several different appellations in Languedoc. Um, and I don't need... think we tasted fourteen wines. Correct, fourteen. Uh, I think yeah. it was in and around there. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, 14 wines. Okay, good. Well, Michael, I'm surprised that you were paying that close attention. I mean, you don't usually pay that close of attention when, when people are, are are forcing you to. I was, I was, you know, holding up my end of the bargain. I mean, you and I were sitting in the back row. That's where they put the bad kids, right? Yeah, and, and the funny part is we're sitting side by side yet texting information to each other. Well, we didn't want to be disruptive. Off, so. we, we definitely didn't no. want to be disruptive. No, but it's pretty interesting. It's kind of funny when my phone buzzes a little i look and it's you and i'm like you're right beside all right if we're gonna do it this way we would have been horrible in class together that's all i'm saying oh yeah yeah no we definitely would have been horrible in class um so we we started off the tasting with um i I think like one of the things that are really strong with the Gerard Bertrand brand is the branding and marketing and they are hopping right on board the uh orange wine train i wish they wouldn't that's my my thoughts on on the issue i think you're a little bit different uh but i you know uh well maybe i one mean of them, i mean it once again I comes could have had a glass of, yeah and that's about it 
But I mean, once again, it comes down to the fact that it's it's crystal clear that you and I are not the target market for orange wine. And I think one of the things Bertrand's trying to achieve with his brand is trying to hit as large a part of the market as possible. And I think we're going to touch on the the other end of that when we get to this. But the first one that we tasted was a 2020 called Orange Gold, which is a blend of Chardonnay, Grenache Blanc, Viognier Marsan, Mozac, and Muscat. Yep. Um, I, I, I remember finding it a little bit on the, on the bitter side. Uh, which is where I usually find orange wine. Uh, I, I was not happy, so I'm going to let you talk about it if you like. See, and I, I found the opposite, that it didn't have the strong bitter notes, especially the strong bitter notes that we're getting from the tannin of a lot of the Ontario orange wines, which I, I know we're starting to see a lot more Ontario producers starting to work with um, more vinifera, where Vidal was kind of the king of orange wine at the beginning. Like, I'm, I'm no Southbrook's orange wine. I think it's still being made with Vidal, but it's been a while since I've talked to... Uh, Andrew Redelmeyer there. I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick look on that. But, um, I mean, it comes down to, once again, I don't I don't think this is um, this is something I'm quite ready to bring into my house to drink on the regular. But this particular bottle, I think, gave me a little bit more insight into why and how people are drinking these wines. It, um, it wasn't a blast. It wasn't a blast of tannin. Uh, like, it was still nice and... I don't know. The, the, the wine was definitely more balanced than than most of the oranges that, that you and I have tasted in the past. See, and I like, I like the second one a little bit better, but still not, again, something I would bring into the house, pour a glass up. I may have been able to have like half a glass. I am still not ready to pour myself a full glass and go, yeah, I'm enjoying this. Well, here we go. The second one is a wine called uh, v- uh, Via Solea. It's a blend of Roussan, Vermentino, and Viognier. Um, and I think there's some details on here. The winemaking... Um, I mean, this definitely had strong notes of the Roussan. Like, when I close my eyes, apart from the fact that there was the, um, you know, the tannic notes and increased... Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm pretty sure I just heard you say satanic notes. And if, if you didn't, that's just a Freudian slip that I think I heard. Because that's... And that's pretty funny. Uh, well, no, I, I mean... wine has satanic notes. Sorry, what do you mean? Satanic notes. S-A-N... Oh no 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 no! I, I definitely just said I just said tannic. Sorry, I said tannic, not satanic. But I was taking a look because I mean, I mean this this was one thing that I actually found a little bit interesting as a winemaking decision. So I just had to go back and take a look at my notes. Is that this wine did spend some time in oak, um, Alien Vosges oak with a light toast, and I, I actually found there were quite a few wines that we tasted where the oak influence really kind of took center stage in terms of how these wines tasted and, and this was definitely yeah. one of them where it's um you know i, I think michael it, it's part of the, one of the reasons why the abc movement was as as strong as it is and this is not me to, to get us on onto a, a chardonnay rant but i think across the board um mediocre winemaking or winemaking where something doesn't taste the way you want it to taste you can try to compensate for that with oak obviously yes so you know, I can't help but wonder if rather than trying to fully follow the trend, I, I mean, it feels like it's it's definitely a, a marketing decision versus, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm trying to pull my thoughts here together, but it's just like, there was a lot of oak on this wine. It didn't taste like most of the orange wines. I think a lot of the vanilla notes and saying that it went and ma- being made with Roussan, uh, a lot of that really jived. But I mean, apart from the color, like, I, I don't know if this would have been a better wine had it just been made like a pure 
like made in a more traditional way without the skin contact. There we go. There's there's the end of my I, point. I, I I believe so too, but it was the one that I found the more interesting than 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 of the two. But again, still not convinced on orange wine. I think we should move along. Change Sauvignon, a Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Pays Duck. Um, once again, I mean, it's the frustrating thing is that we didn't get pricing on a lot of these. We don't know which ones were coming to the market. So, I mean, it's nice to get a cross-section of the of the portfolio, but we weren't tasting blind or anything. We weren't being told to guess what the prices were. But I think I think a lot of the recommendations to run and buy some of these wines are going to be based on pricing. And this is definitely one of them. Um, I think, well, they called it, uh, Andreas called it... Uh, uh, entry level, or he called it low end, or he called it something. And Gerard said, "I don't like that terminology." Uh, I think he may have called it entry level. And I, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Andreas called it entry level, and Gerard preferred the uh, term everyday. Oh yeah, that's actually, right. and actually, I, I, I like that. I actually, think that, that 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 does sum up like a lot of the wines in the in the portfolio. Uh, but yeah, so no, no, I, this. I remember, I remember that. Yeah. Um, anyways, like this, so this particular Sauvignon Blanc, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't trying to be New Zealand, which I which I appreciate. Uh, it tasted like ripe Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges of the south of France is dealing with the heat, which is mitigated in a lot of the Appalachians by altitude. Um, but they do talk about how this wine is harvested at night in terms uh, of helping to protect the, the freshness. And I know I'm hearing more and more. I know it's something that's for for people who have a significant amount of wine knowledge listening to this. I know it's not unusual for warmer regions to harvest at night, but I mean for this particular wine, it was highlighted as a point of how it was made. I uh, I found it a little on the fat side, uh, but it was still a tasty Sauvignon Blanc. And I think sitting there, I said this is so Blanc for sure. Uh, you thought there was a little Chardonnay, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think I think I think I think you're, I think you're you're mixing up my note with this one and the next one, the Chateau L'Hospitalet oh. Grand Vin Blanc, which was the Grenache uh, Bourbon uh, Vermentino. Okay, yeah. And that was one where it spent seven months in French oak, fifty percent stainless, and I felt it had some strong Chardonnay leanings to it. Yes, I remember that, and there was no Chardonnay in it, so there was none. But definitely. Uh, I- and the name of that one again, Andre, I don't have my notes in front of me, but the name will will will, will ring a bell, I think. Chateau L'Hospitalet. So it, it looks oh, like the... The, the, the hospital wine. Yeah, yeah, the hospital, yeah, wine. Yeah, the hospital wine. That's That that was uh, the same mnemonic device that uh, I was thinking about too, so... Yeah, well, yeah, I, I actually enjoyed that wine very much. I thought that was uh, kind of fun. Uh, kind of a kind of a serious uh, wine made from, uh, you know, mostly indigenous grapes for... For the region, yep. Uh, so I, I, I found that kind of a, a fun little uh, little wine that you know should people should check out, uh, and I, hopefully it's under twenty bucks. That's that's what I'm hoping. Uh, in and around twenty bucks, I think it I think it would be fine. And actually, you know, I think this one where I wanted to, I, I mentioned earlier about the points that um, uh, on Andreas was uh, was making was I'm looking at the the food and wine pairings for the Sauvignon Blanc. For the Hospitalet, for the Sigalus Blanc, which is the next one we're going to talk about, and they both say they all three say virtually the same thing: serve at ten to twelve degrees Celsius with fresh scallops, fish cooked in sauce, or as an aperitif. Um, and, and frankly, that's actually I, I think even with what we do on this podcast, we try to keep things a little bit more more general. Where like I know that Andreas was asked a question earlier on about a, a food and wine pairing with um, 
with orange wine, and I don't know if this is pandering to people who generally drink orange wine, um, with apologies to uh, Wine for the People, our, our podcast our podcast victim who came on to try to teach us about orange wine, because I, I know that you're not this kind of, of snob, but I felt the way that Andreas talked about wine and food pairings, specifically with the orange wines, to be incredibly pretentious, because he was asked by Gerard Bertrand, what would you pair with orange wine? And rather than keep things general and talk about philosophy and how you have to work with the wine and work with the tannin with the wine, he busted out this, oh, I think what pairs perfectly with this is this Georgian recipe for a grilled eggplant recipe, something. And it's just like, it's that's not how most people think about wine and food. And once you nail things down to something like really specific... And really pretentious like that, it's it's where you're starting to push people away from wanting to be creative with the wines. It feels like you just don't get something. I don't know if you felt the same yeah, way, I, but but that but that was like when I, he said I, that, I rolled my eyes pretty hard. I uh, I think I heard your eyes roll uh, when you did it. Uh, I'm surprised it didn't fall out of your head and act like marbles on the ground. Uh, but what uh, I have never been a uh, a person who. Uh, will espouse uh, food and wine pairings. I've always said that, you know, drink what you want, eat what you want, and if they don't go together, don't put them in your mouth together. Um, and, and that, you know, will probably alleviate uh, 95% of your problems. I mean, it, uh, it, it, if you it is... If you want to have your fish, go ahead. But, you know, they're probably not going to go together in your mouth, so drink them separately. I mean, there there does need to be a, a happy medium because I, I think one thing, and I think it's it's one thing that Michael, you and I are probably both guilty of as writers and as as white people writing is when we get Gewurztraminer, we fall into a trap of just saying, oh well, Gewurztraminer will pair well with Asian cuisine. And I mean, to be to be frank, a wine like Gewurztraminer or, or Muscat does pair well with virtually everything from well, not everything, but most cuisines from. Japan to Vietnam to to China, but you know, I, I think there's a way where you can be more specific to a region without being so precise that you're coming off like a, a like a gas bag, you know? Yeah, and that, that, I think that was the problem with a lot of his pairings. They were so specific, you know. You know, he didn't just say you know pair with uh, this or, or pair with that. He had to break out recipes. Uh, well, and unless you're prepared to pass those around, yeah. Um, don't don't do it. Or I mean, just to talk about about strategy, right? Like it's the thing about about my love of of Chardonnay is I mean I have a, I and to this day I still have a hard time finding the right thing to pair with Chardonnay, especially once it's seen some time in oak. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do is okay. Whether I'm cooking a steak au poivre or chicken or pasta, you know, I'm generally pulling out the dairy. I'm pulling out cream. I'm pulling out cheese because I know that getting that texture on texture is going to help the Chardonnay along with how we're doing it. And frankly, that's how I'd rather talk about wine and food pairings and be like, nope, this needs to chair, uh, pair with a fettuccine Alfredo, you know, with little bits of scallops and blah, 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 right? Yeah. All right. Let's 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 move on to the, the next wine, which was the Sigalis Blanc. 2020, um, a Chardonnay Viognier uh, Sauvignon. And I'm just... Yeah, I... Oh, the Sigillus, yes. Um, I think I like this one even better than the previous. Which is interesting because my note, I, I found that it lacked a lot of the a lot of the texture and length that the hospital wine had. Uh, I love like what I've, we call I, it the hospital wine. 
<laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I found that this this was this was delicious, but just it lacked a little bit of the je ne sais quoi and tasting them side by side. And I realized that we're also dealing with different, completely different grapes, right? Chardonnay, Viognier, Sauvignon versus Grenache, Bourbon, and Vermentino. Um, I don't. Know, I think it's just how it was sold to us too. Like the the hospitality had a lot of texture on the mid palate was almost exuberant in its texture where the Seagullus was a little bit more restrained, um, probably had, had better acid. And I don't know if it's just me like leaning into the summer where I'm ready to drink some more broader textured whites on the back palate. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's my, that's my comparison. Both, both were good wines, but I think it's also going to come down to, to pricing as well. I mean, that's the frustrating thing about not having pricing is the Hospitale has more of the traditional Gerard Bertrand branding that you see in the vintages section for like 18 to $25, where the Sigilis has this like very new world influence. Like it looks like a Californian label. It's just got, um, it's just got a, a single word on the label with the Gerard Bertrand branding below it. I get the feeling that that's probably going to be a 30 or $35 bottle of wine. Um, and I think coming down to the price, you're getting more wine for your money out of the, the lower end. But I mean, we don't know. There, there were no prices. Yeah, I, I kind of missed that. I, that's the kind of thing that I really wanted to uh, to see uh, was was pricing on a lot of these wines. And, um, and, and, it, just, and it just wasn't there. Okay. Uh, now on to the rosés, which I know is something you're going to be focusing on quite a bit for the next, um, next couple months. Are you going to be drinking a lot of rosé yeah. in, um, in, in Loire? I don't know. There's, um, going through the schedule, I don't see a rosé segment. As I mentioned earlier, there is definitely a Cab Franc section. There's a sparkling wine, Chenin, Vouvray. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, but uh, I did not see anything with regards to any rosés, but uh, you know, it waits to be seen, I guess. Okay, so the first rosé that we tasted was a Grenache saint so Syrah blend called Source of Joy. I thought that was absolutely a delight, and I really, really, really want that to come in at you know, 16, 17 bucks tops uh, I'd buy easily six of that one. It was such a, it really was a source of joy to drink. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, it was loaded with berry flavors. It had nice texture on the back palate, but still nice restrained acidity. Um, looking in the guide here, it's got all sorts of certifications. Um, the low sulfite certification, vegan certified and organic, organic certified as well for those people who care about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and actually even the, uh, and here's the nice thing is to go with the vegan, the vegan certification in the food pairing guide on this. Like this is a nice general, uh, a nice general food pairing that people can take to the bank with them. So serve between 12 and 13 Celsius with Mediterranean salads or vegan Buddha bowls with vegetables. And the thing is like a, a Buddha bowl is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a recipe that there is no one recipe for it. You can look at a few recipes for Buddha bowls and get a good idea of to how to mix and match and make that go. And I, I think that, I mean, it's rosé. It, it definitely would go well with that. I, I thought it drank perfectly on its own. I agree. The acidity was great. The, the, just everything was just, it was really what I wanted in, in, in rosé. It really was. Uh, now, the next wine that we tasted was the 2020 Claude du Temple. Blend of Senso, Grenache Noir, Syrah, Mouvred, Riviognier. Uh, and this is one with, um, um, I, 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 
Chateau de Clan, uh, uh, hopes and dreams, let's say. If, and if people don't know what Chateau de Clan is, it is a, uh, high end rose from Provence that goes, I think the first bottle they have starts at like $40 and then they just go up, up, up in price. And this is one of those wines that is up, up, up in price. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. This is another one we didn't get the price. I have, I, have, I have more to say about it, but it, it looks like it's going to come in around two hundred dollars, uh, or more than two hundred dollars per per bottle. Um, yeah, and I, I think Mr. Bertrand was busy trying to explain how you know people look at rosé as like quick and cheerful and not anything austere and not meant to age, and I mean that's kind of one. Where I know you've written the rosé report for or for a few years, and like the corner, the the cornerstone product for my business is also rosé. I don't know if the goal is for anyone to ever take a bunch of when pigs fly and age it. Like that's not that's not the goal with the winemaking. I'm making wine that I want people to enjoy in the moment and enjoy it while it's fresh. And I I, I mean. It's like I said at the beginning of the podcast. Like Bertrand's really good with the with the branding and, and marketing here, though. But is do you think there's a market for ultra premium rosé, or is this just like he's making something for someone with too much money, and you know the the emperor wears no clothes? Well, I, I'll be honest with you, Andre. I, I wrote in uh, I've written in a number of rosé reports. Rosé is not a wine meant to age, and when I get aged rosés that are over five years old, they're really hard to drink, they're hard to taste, they, they have, you know, uh, nothing in them, and uh, so I said uh, rosé is not meant to age, not for them to go out and find a way to make ageable rosé. I don't think that's a market. I don't think anybody wants to uh, uh, be sitting at a table, or I don't want to be sitting at a table. And a guy says to me, hey, uh, guess what? Today we're going to be trying a 15-year-old rosé that was aged in oak and all that kind of stuff. I don't want that kind of rosé. I want that source of joy. I want that fresh, fruity, sit on a patio, not worry that it's 200 bucks. I want a $15, $20 rosé that's going to make me go, oh, man, I could have drink three bottles of that and not feel bad about it whatsoever. Well, I've been I've been sitting and, and thinking about the the branding and marketing and the, and the way and the why this wine was put together since the since the tasting, and uh, I know when I when I called you, I used a car analogy like that. One of my favorite segments and my favorite types of cars are, are hot hatches, what they call hot hatches in European, which are like the small little little hatchback cars. Like I own a Volkswagen Golf and I love it, and you know I don't know. If there's a market for Rolls Royce or Lamborghini to make a hot hatch that costs five times what a, a Honda Civic or Subaru WRX is, but now I'm sitting here thinking, and you know, for a long time the luxury car makers have dug their heels in in terms of making SUVs, and Porsche yep. was one of the first companies to really blaze new ground with the with the Cayenne, and now you see the Cayenne everywhere. And now I'm starting to see the Lamborghini SUV everywhere. You've got Aston Martin making SUVs, uh, Rolls Royce making SUVs, and I, I guess there's one of two things happening: is is maybe there's just something that you and I completely do not understand about this wine, or Jared Bertrand's just really ahead of the curve, and we might see, I don't know, a Chateau Margaux rosé come out down the road, or or I mean, as, as it gets warmer in Bordeaux, that might be an option for them. 
But I, I think the, the the real thing for me though, where I don't think that's the case, is is this wine ten times better than the source of joy that we had prior to it? And I know I, you and I've I, talked not about. To my talent, and I don't know if in ten years it's going to be be better either. And that's it's it. Still and that's it. It's going to be an oak rosé. And, and, and I mean, and this let let's take apart for the fact that you and I have talked about pricing and what we're willing to spend and the value of a bottle of wine. I've said on this podcast many times, if I think a wine is worth $200, I'm more than happy to spend the money. Yeah, I'm not doing it all the time. I'm doing it only once in a while. But I don't see myself ever pining for this wine the way I pine for some of the champagne that I'm spending the $200 on, some of the burgundy that I'm excited to spend $100 on. I don't see a point in my life right now with the information presented in front of me, with the quality of everyday rosé to steal one of Gerard Bertrand's lines, I don't see myself making the leap to spend 10 times the price for an ultra premium rosé when I can get 10 bottles of Source of Joy for the same price. Look, I uh, I do uh, wine cellar inventories. I, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm in a lot of uh, high-end wine cellars. Uh, and even those collectors are not, that I know of, are screaming for high-end rosé. Uh, you know, I think... I've been doing that now for almost 20 years, and uh, I can count on my hands how many people have uh, Chateau de Clan that's over two years old. Uh, so, you know, there, people are not drinking uh, or wanting high-end rosé. I think rosé is, is exactly what it's, it, where, where the market is now. Uh, and if you're pouring a high-end rosé, I don't think anybody wants to sit in the cellar 15 years, 20 years. It's not, it's not that kind of wine. Not in, in my opinion, it's not that kind of wine. No, and, and but, but I, maybe we'll maybe we'll be proven wrong. I well, don't but, know, it's, but it's, I hope not. It's it's the other thing too. Is I think when people are, are new to wine enthusiasm, there's a correlation between quality and ageability. And you know, we talk about them a lot on on the podcast. We have been proven wrong many times about how the wines from Featherstone can age. But I think Dave's winemaking philosophy is to make a wine ready to drink when it's when it hits the market. And there is. Nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that a wine is inferior in quality because you're making it as a winemaker, as a business person, or as a consumer, you're purchasing it with the intention of drinking it within 24 hours. Yeah. I, 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 well, as we know, that the 90% of all wine is, is consumed within 24 hours. So why are you going for the... Anyway. I love that you. I love that you skipped. I love that you skipped over the part where it sounded like you were about to say I agree with you because I know that that's painful for you and went straight to saying you agreed with me with other words. It uh, it sticks in my throat. Okay, gotcha. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It, it's it's like you know swallowing a seed or uh, or getting on that nut caught in your throat. You're like, <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the let's move on to the reds here. Uh, we had an everyday wine, the Change Merlot. Um, I don't know. I think I think it's just with, friendly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think for me, like uh, when we're talking about like straightforward reds, generally speaking, I'd rather spend a, a few more dollars and get something with a little bit more complexity. I mean, these days, given that I am on a, a bit more of a budget with a vacation uh, to Europe coming up this summer, I'm finding myself drinking a lot of Cote du Rhone for sixteen dollars, a lot of Spanish wine in the same price range between twelve and sixteen dollars. Um, it was a fine Merlot, and this is not me playing the sideways card and, and crapping on Merlot for the sake of crapping on Merlot. It's just, it was fairly one note. I, I, I didn't find anything terribly exciting about it, and I think even if it comes in at 12 or $14, spend the extra toonie, get get something with a bit more complexity. 
you know what? If it comes in at twelve, fourteen bucks, I'm I'm for it. I think it's a I think it's a good wine. It's juicy. People enjoy it. Uh, it's uh, South of France Merlot. I I, I think it does itself uh, justice at that price point. Uh, the Nature Cabernet Sauvignon 2020. Um, I felt like this reminded me, unfortunately, of Cabernet Sauvignon in a cool vintage in Niagara. There were a lot of green notes. It had a bitter finish. It feels like they, they pressed it very hard to extract every bit of tannin out of it, and I don't know if time would make it relax anymore. I didn't, I didn't think so either. I, I tried to aerate it as much as I possibly could, uh, it, both in my mouth and in the glass. I just never got it to open to any point where I was that thrilled with it. I also thought that if they've thrown that in oak, and, and you have the notes with you there, uh, that they over-oaked the crap out of that one. It just was not an enjoyable wine, and that's unfortunate because I was kind of looking forward to it. I'm just taking a look here. Actually, uh, there was no sulfur added to this, but I don't think that had anything to do with the with the quality. I mean, good for them if they're making a low-sulfur wine at an entry-level price. Uh, actually, doesn't say anything about oak treatment on this oak? in the note. Well, then you're, you're 100% right about probably the, uh, the hard-pressing of the skin. So, or the grapes. All so right. Let's go with that. So something All a little right, bit, a little bit more exciting. The 2020 Domaine de l'Aigle Pinot Noir. Um, this is one that I also felt showed a little bit too much oak. It was pretty heavy on the vanilla and black licorice note. However, I did find the aromas and the flavors. This was more of a dead ringer to Oregon. It wasn't even as, um, wasn't even as hot as what I might expect from the south of France. There was a little, not a little, a little bit of. There was quite a bit of balance to this wine, and I think this is one, if you're a collector of Pinot Noir, uh, worth checking out and letting it age for a couple of years to let let some of those oak notes integrate better. But I thought it needed time to relax. Uh, I think you and I were on the same page on, on, on that wine. Uh, what I would say, though, is the Chardonnay from the same estate is uh, is really, really good. So, and, and that's me saying about a Chardonnay, Andre. I think I've I think I stuck in my throat too. Sorry. I, no, the, sorry, the, I didn't mean to jump on. I didn't no, mean the, to jump on your bandwagon. I, I actually, I actually tasted the Chardonnay this weekend as well. Um, I think my only criticism of it is I expect French Chardonnay, regardless of region, to have a certain style to it. It's definitely made in a little bit more New World style. The um, the wood tannin and the wood notes were a little bit more um, exuberant, like right out there, like hits the back of your tongue a bit like you know th that that smell of like fresh cut fresh cut oak like if you've ever worked in a in a wood shop um but it's also one of those things actually it it reminded me of what the henry pelham chardonnays used to be like before lawrence took over the winemaking they're good now they're going to be good for people now if you do like that vanilla and the oak in your chardonnay but in like two three years those wood notes are going to integrate you're going to end up with this big luscious uh, vanilla tropical Chardonnay down the road. Drinking great now, but a bit of patience will will yield you something that's just a bomb in a couple of years. Now, I think the next wines are uh, are blends, are they not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have the Sigilis Rouge, which was the Cab Sauve, Cab Franc, Merlot, Syrah, Grenache, Cadillac, and Carignan. Um, I, I, I like that one, but I think it's the next one that I even like a little bit better. I actually really like the Sigilis as well. I, I my my tasting note is actually yum with an exclamation point. 
uh, medium to full bodied. I mean, which is which is great when we're talking about Langdok because that means it had a lot of freshness with acidity. The fruit was juicy, pushing in on on jammy, but still very well very well balanced. Um, the next one was the Chateau de Villemajou. Oh, I just like the Villemajou. I thought that was really nice. Lots of dark fruit on it, but you know, as it sat open, it leaned into that red fruit as well. Yeah. Uh, I remember some vanilla, some uh, chocolate, uh, a little bit of mocha in there. I thought that was a really nice wine, and man, I'm hoping that comes in under 25. Syrah, Carignan, Grenache Noir, Mourvedre, uh, 10 to 12 months in, in Bordeaux barrels. And I agree with you. Like My first note is just like, oh man, licorice is what I have written down there. Um, let me do it. Let me do yeah. I, I've got my computer up in front of me. Uh, let me see what the price comes up in on that um, for Wine Searcher, which is a pretty good, uh, pretty good litmus test. Oh, hang on. We got the 2016, yeah, no, the 2016 from the LCBO. Oh, page not found. Oh, yeah. The LCBO has done a big update on their on their website. So now a lot of old links are not working. So it's listed an average price about $39 Canadian. And, and it goes anywhere from 20, 20 to 39 I don't know, Michael. I think this is on par with a lot of Rhone wines that would be worth quite a bit more. I know. I, I, I But I really like this wine. You know my philosophy on 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 pricing. Uh, I, I, I but I really love this wine. I thought it was really really tasty. Uh, be nice to see what what the Elsevier brings it in at. Okay, the next one and, we and have. The, that's the thing. They never they never did tell us uh, if all of these wines were coming to the LCBO, which was another uh, uh, another uh, issue I I had. Well, you're going to France, so you might be able to see some of these in, in some of the local shops while you're while you're there. Even though you're going to be there to be tasting uh, tasting Loire vines. Uh, we have the Chateau de l'Hospitalet Grand Vin Rouge, which is a Serrar Mouvedre Grenache. Um, I, I did enjoy this wine as well, but I think it came down to once again to, was it significantly better than the previous two? Because I don't know if these were poured in like the order they were meant to be for for pricing. And like I'm, I'm on Wine Searcher as well. It looks like the average price on this is about $49 per bottle. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I... I was blown away by those that Sigalus uh, and the Majus, and I was like, "Yeah, these are the two wines that I I, I kind of stalled out on." I was like, "Yeah, I like these ones, and that's kind of where I really love them." And uh, everything else after it was like, "Nah, it's okay." And and that's it. And then the last one is the Clo uh, Dora, which is a uh, Syrah Grenache Mourvedre Carignan. Uh, I mean, this was another one that was fine, but it came in at about. It comes in on uh, Wine Searcher. It looks like anywhere from two hundred to about two hundred and fifty dollars a bottle. Um, you know, it was a fine wine. It was a good wine. I don't know if this is something I'm, I'm pining after to add to the collection when, you know, we go back to some of the previous wines where we could get five bottles for the same price or four bottles for the same price. Yeah, but you know, you see that uh, the Bertrand is, is really going. Uh, you know, from from changes, which is that everyday wine, you know, up to the high-end stuff. He's really, uh, you know, he's really in that spectrum on the, on the wine. Well, and I, I think the other thing, too, is, like, he's really pioneering uh, Languedoc as a, as a region because um, it is the region of France that produces the most wine, but I think it's a lot of bulk wine, and he's definitely... It seems like he's on the right trajectory to raise the reputation of the region and do it in the right way. While the marketing is a lot, a little all over the place, and while there were some wines in this tasting that you and I were both not a fan of, there were also some wines that you and I were very big fans of and, and planning on purchasing. Yep. So, 
I think it's just a reminder too that when people are running large wine companies, you're not going to please everyone. I'm sure there is someone on a podcast somewhere else in the world where they're doing this like grand tour of um, of tastings that are going to really love those rosés, that rosé, that $250 rosé that you and I don't completely get. Well, it'd be, it'd be nice to get Gerard on the uh, on the podcast. Maybe uh, maybe if he's listening, uh, or anybody at Family Wine Merchants is listening, uh, look us up. Well, there we go. All right. Well, Michael, you have yourself a a safe trip to France. I'm not sure if we have anything recorded for next week, but we'll see what what happens. Well, maybe we can connect while I am uh, while I am there. I have I have my podcasting equipment. You told me to buy, Andre, so I'm right ready. Well, we'll see if we can connect maybe on the weekend, and um, you stay out of trouble. Uh. Very unlikely, but uh, I'll do my best. Uh, oh, and I know on your trip to Italy. Okay, so on the trip to Italy, you posted pictures of gelato that you had every day. My homework for you is to post a picture of a croissant every day. And if you get the chance... Well, you know what? If I can find chocolate croissant every day, Andre, I'll take a picture of it. Okay. That's my favorite. I, always, a, always a breakfast of champions. In my, in my humble opinion. So what you need to do is skip the hotel breakfast... Find a boulangerie. There'll be a bunch open in whatever village that you're in, or at least one, and ask for a pain au chocolat. I am I am in anger. Well, there we go. We'll see if I can find you a boulangerie I that, there. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. I'm still Andre Wine Review on social media in spite of nearly losing my account on the weekend, but thank you for everyone for the patience and the and the help. Uh, I'm Michael Pingus of MichaelPingusWineReview.com. The website was fine. It was the Instagram that got nailed. But it's back. It is the great guy uh, there and on uh, most social media. So, as always, take us away, Michael. Am I supposed to say it? Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? I think I'm going to do it. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little. 